sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time of Lawrence Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and welcome. How's it going? Welcome back to the show. This is Moving the Needle podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Needling. Again, thanks so much for downloading this episode. Thanks for the reviews, the shares. Hey, man, if you are enjoying this, make sure you share it with a friend. Maybe you'll get something out of it. Now, if you're new to the show, hope you go back in the archives and you check out some of the other episodes. Now, this week... Another exciting episode, especially for me, because it's an old friend, none other than Clay Porter. Now, he's a mountain bike videographer that's gone on to shoot many action sports. He's leading the charge as one of the action sports' most visionary and progressive filmmakers. That's easy to see, because I'm going to go through some of the athletes he's worked with. Now, he hasn't actually released it yet, but he sent me a little copy. He's worked with Tiger Woods. Yes, you heard that correct. In the motocross world... He's worked with James Stewart, Ken Roxon, Robbie Madison, Tyler Vernon. And obviously he's worked with all the mountain bike greats, doing films like Death Grip with Brendan. He's obviously done all those mountain bike iconic films, all those documentaries. You know, he did a, a series with the Athertons. I mean, the list goes on. Some of the brands that he's worked with, Nike, Lexus, obviously Red Bull, um, Honda. I mean, the list goes on. It's actually ridiculous. But... Another surprise is I have a co-host that's going to help me with this interview, and we surprise Clay in the intro. So without further ado, let's enjoy this week's episode. Okay, cool. If I have a sip of coffee, it's authentic. <laughs> I'm trying to do an intro. Can you give me a sec here? <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so uh, you heard all about Mr. Clay Porter's accolades in the pre-show. But I'm super excited to chat to my buddy Clay Porter. But I got a surprise for you because I have a co-host today. No none way. other than Sven Martin no has joined way. the show, ladies and gentlemen. Dude, this is sick. <laughs> hey, Clay, you were wondering if you can drink. Dude, I'm that's epic. Here, I can't hear you, Sven. Oh, I can hear you now. Yeah. <laughs> You're worried yeah. about drinking coffee, but we're drinking beer over here. Yeah, good. You guys are, are winning. <laughs> It's also like 10 hours ahead of you, so I think we're allowed. Yeah. How's the surf been, bro? Um, until I went for my first bike ride with Andrew, it was going real good. And No way. Did you get hurt? I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm hurt right now, too. What'd you do? Uh, over the bars, head, neck, shoulder, back. No way. Possible did you break anything? Ribs. Mm, maybe ribs, but whatever it but, is, it's pretty bad. Yeah. But it's not. it could have been worse. Fuck. Mm. That and sucks. in his defense, he wasn't being a hero trying to keep up with Teo and the South African boys that are getting ready for an enduro. Okay. I was checking out the Helsin, <laughs> checking out the Helsin uh, compound, doing a quick hot lap. No, oh, okay, those like that jump line, yeah. Yeah, but not on the jumps on the flat rock on. Oh, okay, sick. <laughs> Love it, dude. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I knew if you were still in South Africa, but yeah, I've been a bit off the Instagram this week. Yeah, um, you guys getting cold there by now? Uh, losing, dude. We just—I woke up um, like a half hour ago, and it's like the first morning that it's like all frosty and stuff. So yeah, it's getting getting cold for sure. 
It's, it's pretty uh, <coughs> bizarre. That I live in Bend now? Yeah, it's like yeah. you live with me in Laguna Beach for a, a, a short, well, a couple of months, um, or half a year or a year, and then I moved to Bend, and then I left Bend, and now you live in Bend, so your next stop is Dude, New Zealand. Dude, I know, right? I know, I can't, man, I can't, how long have you been in New Zealand now? I can't uh, believe I haven't visited. 12, 12, year, 12 years in the US, 12 years in, in New Zealand, and Wow, yeah. easy. What a trip, man. I still, I st- I still got your board hanging on the right when you walk into my office room. <laughs> no ways. Yeah. How many hours do you think combined us three have spent in a car in those early years? Oh, dude, a lot of. It's amazing how much shit we crammed into that little Honda Element. Like looking back yeah. on it, you know, we had so yeah. much. There's like five people and all the bikes and shit. <laughs> but, but with all these. Um, podcasts and people's life stories and 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 uh i always like everyone complains how hard and tough and or if they don't have a team or they don't have this but they don't realize that nearly everyone that we know and all the south africans and the australians and you're part of all those crews we just drove cars like literally you could drive a car for three days to save a hundred dollars versus a flight but if you could save a hundred dollars that was huge and that would like afford you to get to the next race so there wasn't For an sure. option you just drove in a car like an overloaded yeah. car yeah so i, I don't know, want to call people a... pussies but people are but you're basically calling them pussies well i don't even know if <laughs> them pussies anymore, to be honest. um they're just not as hard i, don't I feel like so back in the day there was more episode, dudes do whatever you want there was uh, there was more dudes like like Andrew and Rennie and all the Aussies and stuff that would come over for like six months and just kind of like not go back and forth back home, you know? And yeah. I feel like maybe if it's the fact that there's not as much stuff based in the US these days, but Yeah. And 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 people go pay their dues in the Europe, but a lot of um American writers, for instance, unless they've got a factory ride, they don't want to do that. Um, mm. So you see very few young North Americans um, kind of doing what the Vanzacs and the Aussies and the South Africans and the Kiwis have been doing, um, or just yeah. less of them, I guess. It's, it's, it's too easy in the U.S., so they um, hopefully they learn something from this. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I love the Vanzacs. I don't even know any of those dudes, really, but I'm such a fan. That Dave McMillan dude, I've never met him, but he's probably – Top five favorite writers, I'd say. I, I think it's how we've all, your influences as a filmmaker, you drew on skate heavily um, and Definitely. other cultures. And I think groups like the Vanzacs and the 50 to 1 um, are kind of more like posses than like race teams. And yeah. as a result, there's more personality and authenticity and... Um, and obviously still they have the skill and stuff, but they loose and, you know, still like to have fun, I guess. For sure. Like I, I 50 to one and the Vanzacs and those dudes, it's like, I feel like mountain biking is only just now old enough where they're starting to be like a culture associated with it, you know? Um, yeah. And I think those guys are, yeah, I, I love what they're doing. But um, even on the flip side of that, on the complete opposite side, I, I did just listen to like an Aaron Gwynn podcast where I, I learned like 
I learned a lot how he pretty much also paid his own dues, you know, like mm. from living by himself at Keith Donner's spot and just practicing yep. his craft. But like he also, the steps came easy to him because of his results, but he also like for a good two or three years, he basically did pay his dues, you know. He, yeah, he didn't have it handed true. to him. And no, he, and he also, I think it's it's nice that he has been more open about that and going on a long-form podcast. And the same... In depth. And, and he was he was pretty humble in saying that he, it didn't just come quick. He'd done a lifetime of work, yes. skill, acquisition, racing, and motocross. So, yes, it looked like it came quick in mountain biking, but he'd done... Te- all the work and the homework and you know the ten thousand hour rule and all that shit that happened. Yeah, and he just had to like, it needed to click in mountain biking for him. But he yeah. had a lot of fitness. He said he was struggling with leg fitness, all that shit. Yeah, no, but I was, yeah, I mean it was cool to hear him in a longer form one. And I think I did want to touch on with Clay, but we'll pause that because you've been around all these top riders, so you've maybe from, seen what makes them tick, and they sort of open up to you more than they do their fellow competitors. Like he's not going to open up to me while I'm racing against him. Mm. but you get to live with these guys and all that. So maybe, you know, for the listener that's been living under a rock and doesn't know that you produced, you know, some of, if not the best mountain bike movies or say documentary style uh, before that was a thing in the sport. Um, talk to them about your like passion for bikes, even though you're mm. now branching off into so many other industries. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, um, but filmmaking started from my love of bikes and not, it's not like I was <clears throat> into filmmaking and then decided I would shoot mountain biking or anything. It was, um, yeah, I got, I got super into mountain biking growing up in, I'm from San Francisco, California. And so myself and a couple of my buddies one summer, this maybe was like fourth or fifth grade, um, convinced my, we all convinced our parents to basically pay for us to go to this summer camp in Lake Tahoe. Um, and they had mountain biking as one of the activities. And around that time, one of the reasons why I was so stoked on this summer camp is they had rock climbing and like a high ropes course and stuff. And I remember one of the days, all that stuff, for some reason, like those activities were canceled. So me and all my buddies tried mountain biking. Um, and yeah, it was like, man, this would have been like 97 or something like that, maybe even 96. So it was like full rigid bikes. And it's not like, it's it was so sketchy looking back on it that this camp would like all these kids that had never ridden mountain bikes would like go ride these trails in um, Lake Tahoe or whatever. But yeah, it um, I got into it at that camp and then um, yeah, just got super into it and rode even though I grew up in San Francisco, I grew up right next to the Presidio National Park. So there was these really short little downhill trails that we could ride. It honestly reminds me of like the stuff that Brendan and Ollie ride in the Surrey Hills. It's like really short, punchy climbs. And then maybe like a 45 minute, one minute descent if you're lucky. But um, it was a cool place to kind of, I don't know, just get into it. And then got into mountain bikes and raced um, BMX for a couple of years and then raced like downhill and dual slalom locally for a couple of years. And then in um, my junior year of high school, I believe I, um, I broke my wrist really bad dirt jumping and couldn't, um, couldn't ride for the rest of the season. Um, and so just started filming my friends more and, 
Then after I broke my wrist, when I would go to the races, I would just do dual slalom instead of doing slalom and downhill, which was like super, I guess, unconventional in that really I was probably the only guy only doing dual slalom, but I wanted to only do slalom so I'd have the time to uh, to start filming. And then, um, yeah, what else? Um, so you I were had a dual to... slalom specialist, and some of your resume, you've, you've beaten like Cody Warren and Carl. <laughs> Sick. You were ahead of the times before like Lopes and Carter were became like, yeah. like a supercross specialist. In, yeah, in exactly. I'm biking. supercross only contract. You've always um, been a pioneer, Clay. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, I had. Now hang on. So, where did you get your first camera? Like, you said, oh, I started filming my buddies, but that was before iPhones and shit. So what? Do yeah, you yeah. No, good question. So when I very, very first started filming my buddies, I bought my parents had like a VHS handy cam. And so I would borrow that. And I remember borrowing that for, I don't know, maybe a year or so. And then one year at Christmas, I got, they got me like a little, like the cheapest mini DV camcorder you could buy. Um, and it was a total surprise. I wasn't like, I didn't like ask for a camcorder or something, but they must've picked up on, yeah, the fact that I was um, using their VHS cam and um, yeah, got me this little $300 mini DV camcorder. That was Chris, that would have been Christmas of 2000 because the following spring at the 2001 Sea Otter um, was the first race where I didn't even have a media credential or like know what that was, but I'd finished doing my downhill race and wanted to film the dual slalom, which as you guys know, at Sea Otter, especially back in the day, was like a really big deal. Um, so anyways, 2001 Sea Otter, I just hopped a fence with this little mini DV camcorder. Very, it's very Sven Martin move of me. I'm quite proud of that. Say, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you share a lot in, in common with how you poach uh, yeah. footage. And that's another thing looking back on it like I I should have like like taken my jersey and my pads off and stuff but I didn't I was just straight to like jersey pads and everything on the course I'm like this you know 15 year old kid that's like yeah and no one said anything um would I I might not have even had a fish eye yet yeah 2001 not no way 0.42 no, that see that like maybe a year or two later I would have picked up on the fisheye stuff and gotten a little screw on fisheye. And then I got So then who won? From you're a stats working at a bike shop a stat, in high school. You're a stats guy, two thousand one Sierra, because that would have been Hannah and those guys. Yeah, I remember that was a big deal because Mick that was the first time anybody had ever heard of Mick Hanna, really. Um and that he didn't he win the beat, slot. Didn't he get like third or something? No, he didn't win, he, but I'm just, yeah, sure he didn't he win. Won. Um I think he got that was my first mountain bike. beat Lopes though, which was a massive deal where I think he knocked Lopes out where Lopes uh, was like round eight. You know, I'm trying to think of who who won though. It'll it'll come to me for sure. Um I think two thousand and one was my first I know two thousand Wade races. Boots won. I remember that. Because I, I think two thousand one Seattle was when I started my Daniel race career. On Team Turner McDonald's. No, I wasn't sponsored then. I I started on a, a specialized FSRXC. Oh, um, I had a silo fork as an upgrade, and I had like three chain rings with a zip tie chain guide, and like, <laughs> and um, I went from beginner that year to expert by the end of the year, and then and then semi pro, then pro. 
Sick. So was next year the the Turner McDonald's year? Um, I'm completely like serious because I it was intense. It was intense McDonald's, but I was like only got on because some guy broke his leg and I had a chumbawamba. And that was the next year. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Because <laughs> I remember that team, dude. It was sick. I I definitely too remember like there was probably a couple years. Uh, when did, how many years did I go to Big Bear? I went. 2002 2003 2004 and then i don't think they had it anymore after that for a while but i remember going to like the big bear national in 2002 and seeing um um the i maybe it was 03 because it was like i remember you were on turner mcdonald's and then the next year it was like turner bike company which i always thought was such a sick team um back then and it was like yeah, for all the listeners that are listening, there was this Sven was on this team that Andrew eventually was on as well that was kind of based out of this bike shop in Southern California called the Bike Company, which if you're a super grom mountain biker like me growing up in San Francisco, you always saw in the back of the magazines and the bike company orders. would have, yeah, yeah, would have like like a half page ad. And they were always the shop that had like, I remember um, stuff. Well, I got a Royal racing t-shirt from there yeah. and they were like probably the only person in 2002 that you could buy Royal clothes from. Right. Which was obviously Petey's thing back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, that team was sick. You guys did a good job. So back then, so before you were known as a filmer, who were your mm. idols or who are you looking up to? And then, who was the first like proper hero that you got to film with? Like where you probably shat your pants and hope you charged all your batteries and like you were super nervous yeah. to film. Other than Fuck. me, obviously. Probably you. Stuff, like, <laughs> other than me. Yeah. Um, the first. Yeah. Let so me, was the let mad, me think. I think you did, you did the Yeti guys and then you did the Mad Cats guys. I, I yeah. Think like the first. Oh, maybe with the Yeti guys. Yeah, and and um, I guess it'd first, be Jill Kittner actually was the first pro. She was on your I remember. cover of your video. Yeah, and so she was basically so in two thousand two and two thousand three. Jill was living in San Jose, and this was when I was still living in. You know, I'm like sixteen, seventeen at this point. Um, and I had Jill and I had a couple mutual friends, and anyways, like I met Jill through um, a couple buddies of mine that were like maybe like the top like local expert racers type thing. Um, and, and, and I remember to this day in it would have been in 2002 coming home um, and checking my parents answering machines. There's no cell phones and shit back then um, and getting a message from Jill Kittner. And it was like, hey, this is this is Jill. I got your number from Curtis Beavers. That was the name of my buddy. You remember him, Andrew? Curtis Beavers at all? Curtis Beavers, you remember that name? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's who that was a mutual friend who introduced Jill and I. But I remember I got a a uh, voicemail from Jill and she was like, I got your number from Curtis. Be fun to film with you sometime. And I remember getting that and just being like, No way, this is crazy. Like <laughs> tripping on that still to this day. Um, and uh yeah, and then Jill and I um, started hanging out and, and became good friends. Um, Jill has a really rad artistic background. And at the time she was going to, to design school. So I think we had a lot of in common and that we we're both super into mountain biking and, and really into like design and yeah, that sort of thing. And, um, and then um, 
Jill, maybe a year or so after this, Jill had just signed with Yeti. So this is like the beginning of the 2004 season. And Yeti told Jill that they wanted to hire a videographer to come film the team. And so basically Jill put my name in um, and I got essentially what turned into like an unpaid internship with with Yeti. Um, hadn't you done, hadn't you already made your own movie? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the, oh, so, okay, here's the, the other tie-in to the kind of Yeti connection is that um, two of my really like good friends who I rode with um, like all the time um, rode for RPM Yeti, which was Keith, Keith Darner's like development team in that, in those years. Um, and, and so that's they who Sven mentioned that took Gwyn under his wing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right. And he stayed yeah, it's Keith, Keith Darner. Shout so out Keith Darner, legendary dude. Um, yeah. yeah, but so he, so, so sorry, the year before 2003, I, I convinced, I'm just trying to remember, I convinced my buddy Ian Richards, who was like the RPM semi-pro. Um, and then, and he was like, he made the like US Junior Worlds team in like 2000, 2001. He was a pretty sick junior expert racer. And so he was, he was one of my good friends. Um, and he told Darner that like, yo, I got my buddy Clay and he, he wants to come film us at all the races. Is there any way he could stay? on the couch or on the floor or whatever. Um, and Darner was down, which is great, which is so sick of him. And so, yeah, 2003, I went to all the essentially us races with RPM Yeti. Um, and then the, the following year in 2004, I went to all the North American races with like the Yeti factory team. And so 2004 would have been the first. Yeah. And then you guys too, obviously I thought that was, before you lose track of the Keith Donner story, so for yeah. listeners' context, we've mentioned him and he ran these awesome development teams for Yeti and he's done a lot for the sport and he housed... And now he does, team. he's done last 10 years like enduro yeah. events in Colorado. Like still grassroots racing and all that stuff. Is mm. it true and is he the... Oh, maybe not, not the... Well, remember that story where someone farted and then you were like, oh, that stinks. And then Keith Donner said, well, what do you think it's going to smell like? It's air trapped around a piece oh, of yeah. shit. Was that That's a Keith a Donner-ism? Yeah, Keith Donner-ism I'll for never sure. forget that. I yeah. still use that to this day. The funniest yeah, yeah. shit I've heard in a long what time. What do you think it's supposed to feel like? Or what do you think it's supposed to smell like? It's air compressed around a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, like dry like that. Yeah, I'll yeah. Donner's amazing. He's, def he's one of the funniest people i've probably ever met in my life one of the coolest people too that just like lives like by the beat of his own drum you know like he was it's it's so mental looking back on those years especially because it's like we're all so so young dude like it's like most of the team isn't even 18 yet so he's literally like proper babysitter like and not just like a couple kids like you no, know retard like, kids yeah, we're like 10 or about, 15 kids. So we're talking about being kids um, and you yourself like yeah. just finishing finishing and finished high school. You seem like you kind of knew what you wanted to do because you didn't just film as a hobby. You got into editing and, and going into music. And then as a like a 17, 18-year-old, you learned about music rights and distribution and you made your own like films. Um which 
was I was going to say it's like a, it was a harder thing to do then because you couldn't just do everything on your little laptop and, and like watch a YouTube tutorial or something. <laughs> and and even just the distribution, you had to do take proper solid like business steps yeah. and have meetings and and deal with you know um, yeah uh, like how did you jump into that. Like, is it something you just fell into or is it something you consciously knew this is no, like, could be a career or was it just it. like a, a hobby that will just kept snowboarding? Yeah, boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, I mean, I guess like after I broke my wrist when I was 16, 17 and couldn't race. See, the thing was, I was never that good of a rider or a racer right? I beat Cody. That's why the Cody Warren story is so fucking funny because we probably like we're on the same result sheets 50 times. And the one time I beat him was the time that Dude. obviously I told you guys back in the day, you know, I'm, but the other I'm, 49 other times, it's like, I, I knew there wasn't a future in me, I guess, being, being able to be involved with bikes as with me as a rider. And then, so once I started filming, um, I mean, it, it was, there wasn't even like, like the only reason why I taught myself maybe the distribution at the time or researched how to get VHS copies made was that you had to do that. There wasn't like, obviously all this stuff there is now today. So what, but it, but what I'm saying is it wasn't like a conscious thing. I, what my, there was no sort of like financial tie in to my thinking. It was more like, I have to learn this stuff so people can just see my work, see you know? And so there wasn't, I mean, dude, it's taken me so, the, the like probably first nearly 10 years of my career, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't even probably know what a day rate was. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that where you can actually, yeah, I mean, it's changed so much throughout the years in that like brands are now wanting like content or whatever you want to call it, you know, or, branded videos and stuff and I, I i guess they did back in the day too because essentially rpm yeti wanted that and that's why they allowed me to crash with them in 2003 but um yeah it was more i i guess my motivation really was you know it, i never really remember a time of being like oh this is sick i'm gonna fucking get rich off this movie it was just like it literally was like oh cool i'm gonna sell this one and then I'll have enough money to buy flights to make another one, you know? And it's kind I mean, I, I'd say it was like that. Like, Three Minute Gaps was maybe the, the first film that was a little less in that line of thinking, you know? But even like then, I didn't have, like, more you know, I look back on Three Minute Gaps, which was definitely more international, but but I wouldn't say it was more professional because I didn't, I didn't have a budget, you know, I didn't have, it was still like, um, yeah, I think, I guess it was professional in the way that I wanted it to, to look and feel and stuff, but it was, I, looking back on it, you know, I probably could have made a lot more money if I wasn't, you know, like, like, like spending so much on music, for example, you know, like, it's not like I had a three minute gaps budget and was like, oh, cool. We've, I only have 10 grand left for, for music or whatever. It was like, you know, like, Oh, I have 10 grand in my bank account. I can afford the song I want to use for 
whatever, you know, Sam Hill's section or something. So <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really until that era. Like, I guess maybe the Atherton project was probably the first project that I did that was like, you know, I had like a salary and, you know, it definitely got more perfect, like working with Red Bull and stuff was, um, definitely a big step forward and I look back at especially working with the Atherton's with the Atherton project because that one was really like not only am I staying with them during the races but I'm literally like living with them in between you know and the task was like you need to every two weeks and every not like every two weeks in a day like literally every two weeks on whatever it was I don't know what day of the week it was but I had to deliver a 10 minute somewhat story driven fly on the wall piece about the Atherton's, which, you know, when you're 2009 clay Porter seems like super easy and oh, this will be great and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and for the most part it was, I learned so much on it, but um, I, I think the thing that I learned the most with the Atherton project is how to work with talent and how to work with athletes and subjects and, and how, when to kind of like, when to ask G to do an interview and when not to type thing. And I think I, it constantly amazes me how much, you know, in recent times when I'm on some sort of like commercial shoot where the talent, you know, other than just introducing myself, like they don't know my name, they have no, you know, they're just, I'm just a filmer that some company has hired, but, but things that I learned with working with the Atherton specifically that, that I apply like, so much to my work these days and even on the one other just quick thought on that is on the post-production side um the atherton's really taught me um um how to edit dialogue a lot like the atherton project was such a, a dialogue driven project whether it's talking head interviews or me miking up danji or rage when they're in the pits or whatever where i it really taught me to um like I've always said my job as an editor is to is to make present the subject in the best possible light, you know, and that comes with taking out ums, likes, um, you knows, and... that sort of thing, which I'm probably um, saying um, a lot likes. too. But um, but yeah, it's it's mental like how these days I can look at any sort of dialogue and be able to literally like, you know, if you played me back a minute long audio clip, I could instantly within one viewing, know exactly what chunks to take out to make that minute long audio clip 15 seconds. You know what I mean? Where you're still you're still presenting the audience the information that needs to be presented, but you're editing it down. And the more you can edit stuff down, down, down and trim the fat, trim the fat, trim the fat, the better, you know, the work is pretty much nearly every time. I can't think of an instance where adding footage is going to make a project like a lot better you know and it's crazy too I, I i like is that like a less is more kind of thing it's kind of a little lesson i'm hearing here because i tried to write a piece and i probably used too many words or a longer paragraph mm, yeah you, exactly and even even like uh, five words instead of ten see, is that yeah better see i'm a i'm a terrible editor of my own work i can edit somebody else's work i can look mm, at Dan Boris's work and be like he can show me 100 photos i'll be like those 10 those 20 the but thing my though work, that my work i'm like tied into too much i'm like oh but i kind of like that one because of this and and i know I, and my that's work so i end up giving a lot of images and i let someone else edit down my work mm. um, 
And often, That's even when cool. we would do the like vital slideshows or whatever, we would edit each other's work and we were much yeah, stricter. Like yeah, got yeah you take, no, that's you, cool to hear. I don't know if I knew that. How, yeah. how do you um, pull yourself away from the emotion of liking a clip versus, fuck it, I really I like mean, that, that, the, the, the whole reason why it, it's, I, I think any filmmaker throughout their entire career is constantly learning what we're talking about because that's the task at hand, you know, is present the most information in the, most compressed amount of time, you know, but I look, I think, I think what we've discussed is something that I, every day I'm learning more and more, you know, like an, an example I'll give is it's 2021. So in 2013 was the year that myself and John Lawler made won't back down the Steve Pete documentary, which I look back on. I, I forget how long it was exactly, but it was long. It was like an hour and 40 minutes, you know, and I don't think I've watched that film probably since the last premiere, but I know that that um, if I were to watch it right now with six, seven years more storytelling editing experience under my belt than in 2013 when I made it, it would be probably like just over an hour. You know, I would just just trim, 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 trim. And I think I think that's, you know, Won't Back Down was was sick and I was proud of it and Lawler was and Steve and everybody pretty much loved it but it didn't it didn't really catch on outside of the mountain bike world and I think the reason why it didn't was because I hadn't um yeah I just you know I needed to mature more as a storyteller to be able to deliver something that's so compressed that it's going to be able to uh gain the attention of somebody that that's not into mountain biking or doesn't know Steve, blah, blah, blah. But, and then, but it, and then the other thing too, like, like boys remember like synopsis and hypnosis, dude, those things were yeah, so I, fucking long, dude, like I needles. Have, you, one of your sections was like, was like two or three songs. It was like, I used every single shot we filmed, <laughs> but because it's like, I'm, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I just met Andrew Neepling and I'm like, this is crazy. I'm shooting dirt jumping at Andrew and I can like <laughs> tell him when to stop. And if I got to change a battery or whatever, he'll stop for me. This is insane. You know, the other thing too, that I've, that I've really noticed, like in the so last, hang on, hang on. So this yeah, is okay. not a, this is not a vanity pool here, but is that the longest video part in mountain bike history that we put together? Your hypnosis part? Like Probably, when you had, like, dude. Two hip hop songs. Yeah, four I think minutes I'm, of dirt jumping of like the same flatty and fucking. I, I whatever know, I was man. trying to do. But that's that's cool. that's like the the other thing too. I'm I'm so vicious with editing down the writing. Like these days, I'm like, oh well, the roost could have been a little bit higher. Semina could have could have could have clicked that table a little bit better. I know what he's capable of. Well, back then it was the opposite, where I'm like. Dude, I've never even seen anybody do an invert table in my life. And so I want to like, yeah, I just, uh, you more know. More is more back then. But, but yeah, um, exactly. But the, I, I think I, think I got to give myself a little bit of credit in that there wasn't like, it was pretty much whatever I made and then, and then whatever uh, Alex Rankin made that year. And there was a few years where like, Alex that was, was the only... Yeah. type of like way you could see any of this stuff so i definitely kind of knew that Cause, you cause know you didn't and, see 
you didn't see everything on social media, so it, that was the way of showing everyone mm, what was going on in the scene. So yeah. although it was long now as a filmmaker and it, well, for a project like Won't Back Down, but for the core audience that was buying the videos, they the more they could see, the better, because that was their only, um, that was the only glimpse yeah, of what only... was going on in the world. And then I think what what the main thing is what people outside of the mountain bike industry don't maybe realize and what you maybe don't give yourself enough credit for in other industries even in other action sports you you have filmers that are separate to the editor that is separate to the producer that is separate to the mm. director you you literally yeah. you know I, I did a specialized commercial and there were like 22 people on set and only two of those were the writers and i was the stills and the other 18 were about yeah we're <laughs> but but totally. we've all done that stuff where you've been obviously now you're on bigger projects and you're you're with companies and you collaborate but for you know for a decade you were the guy that did those those 18 person people's roles you know so um and and also that is also the best way to learn the full craft of, of yeah your, for of your, sure of your craft you know you've done the the shoot you've done everything from taking out the trash to cleaning the floors and everything in between, you're the, being the one-man show, so it does allow you then, you know, to recognize your strengths and and do different things. Um, but For you do sure, have to understand the whole whole process, which a lot of other people, you know, maybe maybe don't do. But it's yeah, that's one one thing. Kind of on that note, I guess my comment to that, um, to what you just said, Sven, is like I think the biggest piece of advice I'd probably give anybody that's listening that's that wants to be um wants to be a filmmaker specifically like shoot action sports or whatever is is edit your own work and learn how to edit not because you're gonna make a ton of money just being an editor blah 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 but simply because when you're in the field you know you're, you're able to be really confident in what you're shooting because an, an, an editor's mind can be in the field and know how things are going to be cut together before they actually cut them together. And because of that can be pretty, pretty specific on what they shoot and not shoot a lot of stuff that might not make it, you know? Um, so I think, and, and it's funny now that like, you know, I've had, a number of years of, of, of getting involved in various commercial projects where I'm, as you say, Sven, I'm just hired for, um, to film for it, you know, or some, I'm a couple, I'm just hired to edit them or, you know, stuff like that. And it's like the, what I learned editing my own work was so beneficial to me growing as storyteller, because you learn how to, you learn what ingredients work well together and what ones don't, you know, it's like, yeah. So, um, I, I think another thing that, you know, looking back on my career, I guess, if I had to, um, was that, that was really beneficial. Sound old. I know dude. Right. But, but, is, but I am 37, bro. 37. I know. You must be like 57 now, Sven. Hell no, no, bro. <laughs> I was going to say, play Paul is <laughs> I'm just old. kidding. Sven's a dinosaur. <laughs> 10 years no, no, no. 
you and Steve are 10 years older than me. Like, yeah. to the one of you guys is, I think it's 10 years to the month or something like that. I was, yeah, dude, Steve. Andrew, your birthday is August 3rd, 84, baby. Don't fifth. forget it. August 5th. Oh, is it 5th? That's impressive. Two days off. Sorry. You need to update your <laughs> iCal there, my friend. I know, Close man. I thought I, I thought I nailed that one. But, um, but uh, no, I was just going to say one thing looking back on this crazy kind of like just my life pretty much because, you know, like it's the other thing to pay attention to that I always tell people when I'm trying to explain to them like what I do, because there's so many different facets of it, as you guys say, editing, booking, blah, 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 planning shit is like the, I've, the only source of income since I've been an adult has been um, making content basically, you know, being a filmmaker. Um, and I've never had, you know, it's not like I've had, um, it's not like for the first five years I did something else to support it. You know, I was so all in on it. Um, and that, I guess what I'm trying to say is like going to so many races when I first got into it and filming racing and filming all of practice and stuff, it, you're able to hone your skills so quickly, man. Like people all, the question I always get these days is like, is like, how do you, how do you pull focus? Or they, it's always these questions about pulling focus. And, and the reality, like pulling focus is like, I could dude, like nine times out of 10, honestly, pull focus with my eyes closed as crazy as that sounds, because I've spent like half my life, you know, for like, especially the early years. I've got What's to cut that? in and, and tell the story because not not many people know this one, and I know uh, a lot of people. What listen, is it? <laughs> you know, a lot of people are going to be listening to this, and you've brought it up, pulling focus, and like all the up and coming filmmakers, they like you're the go to guy when they. I see them tagging you when they like do a focus pull or something. Oh, you know? um, yeah. So like we we you had got that job with GT, and they had a big budget, and um, Atherton's were on it. And then they they had that um that phantom right and oh yeah Nick no, Schrock came out nobody really was uh using phantoms in mountain biking maybe one of the first maybe maybe Newell sort of guys did something with it yeah. but we were in um at a at um Grizz's spot in um, Pine Valley yeah and this guy was driving down with a phantom from LA and she was there and the sun was setting and literally you know we're gonna get a sunset sunset slow-mo shot the guy's yeah. late stuck in traffic gets there sets up the whole big bloody pyramid tripod and then we're all nervous i, I know it's ticking down because i know like what happens once the sun's gone the shot yeah like you know it could still get the shot but it's not gonna be epic and you literally by the time you got the camera rolling it was literally two minutes three minutes max before the sun would have set yeah the guy like g drops in the this. guy's the, the guys like we put it on jib too remember yeah it was on jib and the guy like a jib is a crane for anybody yeah listening. on a crane and then g did it did his like big old whip or whatever on the yeah. big jump and the guy like is trying to focus pull but he hasn't had practice like you said he hasn't sat on every single mountain bike race and filmed all of practice and honed your skills and then i saw something which for like you were still like you're not a kid anymore but you knew you only had one more shot and you also knew there's no way the guy was going to get it. And you like literally just muscled him aside and you said, 
I got this, dude. And you hadn't ever worked that big cine lens, so you didn't know the throw. So you just yeah. literally, you look through the lens and you move the, the little thing that, you know, the focus puller, um, which in other jobs they have a separate person to do, like a third guy. Um, and then G dropped in and the sun was literally setting and you just did the perfect focus pull on a lens you've never done a focus pull on other than <laughs> like what just practicing without a, without a, even a rider. And then yeah. you nailed the shot and you're like, all right, dude, I got it. And you sent the guy back home. Like, that was it. Done. Shoot <laughs> over. It was, do you remember that day? I definitely remember that day. Because that's how it happened, Nick bro. Was, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I remember Nick was late. I guess I don't really remember, like, like scrambling to, like. No, because I was there trying I, to get I the did. same lights. Yeah, so yeah. I remember, yeah. No, I mean, that's like, yeah, dude, it's, it's, uh not shooting racing too you're 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 shooting events that are out of your control you know and when you get good at shooting in environments where you have no control then when you get in a in a on a project where you do have control then it's like you're almost like you know i feel like superman or it feels like you're like cheating or something you know <laughs> like it's like Shoot, shooting racing man and like you will get good at shooting if you really devote yourself to shooting you know pretty much every race you can for a couple of years you know and 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 if you can't go to any races then set up your tripod on the corner of the street of a busy street and literally practice pulling focus on license plates coming towards you you know and it's like that's pretty much exactly what i did and instead of cars it was you know, dudes on the Norba circuit. I wasn't pulling focus then, but it was, you know, like the later years. And, and and that's the other thing too, is where the focus pulling stuff came from was like, I just got bored setting my focus at World Cups. You know, it was like, I want to, you know, I have to like keep doing new things that excite me in order to keep kind of doing this, you know, to me, the worst thing imaginable is like, you know, shooting the World Cup series every single year on the same camera with the same whatever and blah, blah, blah. It's like every year I want to bring something different to it, you know? And I, I just, the focus pulling stuff came 2009. I was still either setting my focus manually or just shooting autofocus. And then towards like halfway through that World Cup season, 2009 is the first year I did the Athkin project and I started three minute gaps. Um, but yeah, I, I remember just being like literally bored at world cups, setting my focus and shooting on autofocus. So I was like, fuck this. And then just switched it to manual and just literally started teaching myself how to do it, you know? And that, that was on an EX one, which is like a video camera, which is a very like untraditional thing to, usually like the term focus pulling kind of only comes into the equation when you start using cinema lenses and you can shoot at shallower depth of field and thus you have kind of more creative room to pull focus with, you know, but uh, yeah, it's all, for me, it's just all about, you know, doing different and different stuff. So where um where do you draw the inspiration from? I know you watch a lot of skate movies and you've actually collaborated with some amazing filmmakers and producers and stuff. Like where do you pull inspiration from, or did as well back in those? Yeah, days? Um, I think um, I mean it definitely it's 
ever changing, obviously. But um, I mean, in those days, it was I was pulling a ton of information from, or a ton of inspiration, excuse me, from Dirt Magazine, from Alex Rankin, from the Sprung videos, the Earth videos. Um, but I think something that, again, something that to me was, I guess, looking back on it, like was somewhat forward thinking is I always tried to like look outside of mountain biking for inspiration, whether that be looking at skate videos and seeing how those are edited or even like feature length documentaries that have nothing to do with sports or feature films for that matter, not even filmmaking, music inspiration, like you know, I've, I've always been really into design, even though I've never really designed anything myself, like even all the packaging and stuff for the films over the years is, excuse me, always done by somebody else. But I mean, dude, it's like, for, for me, inspiration is like a switch that you don't turn off, you know, it's like literally everywhere, you know, I could be inspired walking down the street and see a cool typeface on a sign and, and take a photo of it, you know, and then three years down the line, like maybe use that typeface for a title in a project or something. It's like inspiration is something that's just like, it's, it's always, you, you, I, I don't, I can never remember a time in my life where I wasn't actively paying attention to like, I guess what I thought was cool. You know, and I think that's another, along that line, another piece of advice I would have for any anybody that's listening that wants to get into filmmaking or, or any sort of art for that matter is like really um, be conscious of developing your voice and be conscious of developing your taste for that matter, because that'll influence kind of your your voice and whatnot. But like, I guess know when you make something, know how you want to make it and know how that'll fit into the ecosystem of things in that industry that are already being made and that being, you know, and then when you kind of look at it that way, you can make something that hopefully people will watch because you're, you're actively trying to maybe do things a little bit differently, but just, but just knowing, knowing what you personally think is cool. That's what art is. You know what I mean? It's, it's somebody, being like, oh, I think this is really cool. And whether it's a painting or a film or whatever, they're just presenting it to the world. And like, this is kind of my interpretation of what I want to make and hopefully people like it. And I'm sure there's a crowd that with anything isn't going to like it, you know? Um, now, now you keep, like you said, you keep improving every year and looking for further challenges or getting bored so you kind of one-upping yourself so to speak um which kind of led you to getting out of mountain bike as a not out because you've always been in but totally. for, for a couple of years you you know we didn't see you on the tracks anymore um yeah but then without really needing to because it's not like you needed to work and it's not like you were taking a backward step either but obviously you know um you came back and did some work with Aaron Gwynn like a year or two and, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah. Is that because you missed the sport, missed the people or, or, or talk to us about sort of not leaving the mountain bike industry, but, um, you know, you, you definitely didn't need to come back to mountain biking, but obviously you're still riding and you're still passionate about it. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I definitely was stoked to do the Aaron Gwynn um, series because, yeah, just because I missed it, you know, like it, like it was, uh, 
I was just stoked to one, I missed everybody, the athletes, photographers, whatever, mechanics, everybody. And then two, I knew that prior to, to doing Timeless in 2020, the last World Cup that I had shot was 2014. And so I knew that I had kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like six years more experience under my belt with storytelling. And I wanted to go back into an arena that I was really familiar with, like World Cup racing, and um, just apply my newfound knowledge and see what I could make, you know, and that was really fun to me. Um, the other thing that was really cool about the project with Aaron last year um, was that um, it, it was the first time in a long time that I had done a project where I was doing everything again myself. Um, and so I was, I, John Reynolds helped out doing a couple days shooting some drone stuff while we were in Mammoth. But other than that, and, and maybe footage that Aaron shot with a GoPro himself, like I filmed everything on my own. I edited hundred percent of everything. Um, you know, I had Keith White, who's, uh, the sound designer that I worked with for over 10 years, he, he, he worked on the audio and stuff, but like, as far as the actual production of the, the, the project, it was me a hundred percent. And that was really exciting to me to almost like, yeah, just take what I, what I had learned from starting to work on bigger commercial shoots. And, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely positives to that and that, you know, no kind of screw is left on turn, but at the same time, it really, from my eyes, like when you have that many cooks in the kitchen, it starts to dilute the vision a little bit, you know? And I, I was kind of starting to feel less creatively fulfilled, even in the kind of commercial work that I was doing. Um, so again, it was like, for me, like variety is the spice of life almost. And like, I just kind of like, yeah, was, was, uh, just wanted to do something 100% on my own. And, it, and it's really interesting, like these days, when I look at whose work I really admire, especially in the action sports space, it's like always work where the director is also editing their own work, you know? So whether that's the stuff that Rupert Walker is doing with Brandon with Revelco, you know, it's like Rupert's dire directing it, probably the main shooter, and then editing it, or like, Ty Evans, um, who's a big influence um, and comes from the skate world, he's always edited his own work, you know, and it's always like I've just been creatively driven to work that you can tell, you know, that the, that the, the director is the editor too, you know. It's almost like I can't really imagine a project that I'm passionate about and having someone else edited it. That'd be like That'd be like Andrew, like, like, you know, you not test riding your bike before a World Cup or something. I don't really know what the what the it's best not a analogy, bad analogy is. Yeah. Or you but let someone else test ride your wife. It's yeah. just not really a good <laughs> thing. I mean, there are people that are into that, but it's just different. Yeah. How, how um, this how in that six years of absence, how do you see the sport or the level of professionalism? within the industry the racing and and the maybe the athletes themselves um because mm. it, it was pretty funny like i saw a moment when you were there and like you were when i did coming, when i met loic 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah, what I was dude, gonna say. What but that was tight. so we, we were there, and, and we were like in the pits, and then like Clay was fucking hyped, man. Like, so hey, I'm like Clay, and, and, and like they were both trying to get selfies of each other because they had like Loic and obviously <laughs> like respect like no Clay was fanboying Loic, and Loic was fanboying Clay, and and it was like this was the weirdest thing to see, you know? Like, um, <laughs> that's funny. Weird. Yeah, I, I definitely remember that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I guess an important thing to note maybe for somebody that's listening is that so 2014, I, I didn't go to I stopped going to all the World Cups. Um, and so for six years, it's not like I was out of mountain biking. I was just out of the World Cup series. So I was still doing tons of mountain bike projects, whether they be, you know, um, commercial pieces for bike companies when a company would release a new bike, you know, it would be, you know, I would direct and edit and shoot a three minute piece about that or a, or a project for Red Bull when I would work with the Athertons or I did a really cool project with Stevie um, in 2015 in Japan. Um, and so just stuff like that, where I was, it, it wasn't like I, I, I just, with the world cup stuff, like, like after three minute gaps, that was kind of the limit of what I could do um, with the resources that I had, you know, like, and even three minute gaps was like, John Lawler was really involved in that project. And at this point, John Reynolds, my good friend, who I still work today with on pretty much everything, he had now taken over my job at Yeti, you know, so I had, we had kind of like a little posse at the races, which was amazing and what made three minute gaps kind of be a step above maybe the other world cup projects that i did prior to that but the reality is like for me to for it to be exciting i needed to i i guess then take it to that next level which would have been like you know i don't know just more cameras and more more budget and more support and 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 the ability to tell more dynamic stories and more more kind of complete stories. And then, um, but yeah, I just didn't it, like, you know, that people always ask me like, would you ever do another world cup film or three minute gaps too? And all this stuff. And my answer has always been like, dude, I would absolutely love to, but I'm not going to go there on my own with a Sony EX one camera. And you know what I mean? That's not fun for me, but if I were to go there and be able to do it differently and mic up all the mechanics as they watch their athletes and just interesting stuff, that could that could um yeah just tell this tell a similar story but just differently like that's super exciting to me so yeah um but i think i think another thing too is is in 2012 was when i got my first um red camera so i started shooting on red and shooting with you know different lenses and really starting to experiment with shooting shallower depth of field and just everything that comes from with working with cinema equipment rather than kind of a video camera um but yeah I did, I did that for two years and that was sick and then kind of by 2014 it was like you know I'd kind of done everything I could do on my own with a red camera too and so that yeah but I but but I never really got like yeah I, I was always still super involved in mountain biking just maybe not at the races but to answer your question Sven Os, like I think um I guess what's changed about it, there's definitely less partying after the race. Um, maybe I'm getting older and I'm less interested in partying myself. So that's probably those two of those together. But there's, um, 
I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is the coverage for the sport, you know, and that's something I really only noticed after I stopped going to the races, because when I still would go to the world cups, like, and, you know, film all practice and working on three minute caps, I would never go back and watch the live feed. You know, I only started really paying attention to like the live show and all that stuff when I wasn't around. And I think the fact that like you can buy an Apple TV or a smart TV or whatever, and there's an app built in that comes with it that you can go on for free and stream the world cups is like, you know, if you were to told me that in 2005, when I was rolling around the U S with you boys in the Honda element, like that's ridiculous. You know, it's just in, it's just like a dream, you know, a pipe dream for that matter. And, 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 and so I look at the sport now and I'm just like, um, yeah, the, the live feed is just amazing. You know, I think the show is really well done. I think Rob Warner has really done an incredible job of, of really kind of becoming the voice of the sport in his own kind of unique way, which I really like. And I think Warner's an amazing commentator. Um, but, um, and then I think, I don't know, I think the sport, I think everybody in mountain biking has always been really cool, you know? And I think that's, um, I don't know, just something that the sport really has going for it that everybody's pretty rad, you know, especially for racers. And now that I've, now that I've shot a lot of moto racing, you know, like when I, when I go and shoot that, it's not, it's just, I, I think it's a little different for me in that I don't have like a personal friendship with the athletes that I'm shooting, whereas mountain biking I do, but it's like motocross is so, there's 18 supercrosses and 12 outdoors and supercross testing and outdoor testing and blah, blah, blah. And there's just no, time to really get that creative in motocross whereas mountain biking and world cup racing it's like you know if you're a dude like aaron Gwynn, you do six world cups and world champs and maybe a couple of little random races to kind of keep the skills in check but you're able to be a top level racer and maybe have the time to do projects that i like doing you know so um so yeah, I mean, talk to us and take us inside the tape or inside a film shoot with maybe we start with Aaron Gwynn, which we said in the beginning, we'd love to, you know, pick apart because you've been given a front row seat to say some of his prep, how he, he looks at the sport, how he did look at the sport, you know, and, and he's yeah. been a little bit more vocal these days, which is awesome for him to open up because it must have been hard for him to come out and then eventually dominate and be expected to win everything, which is not realistic, but you kind of know him on a personal level because you're not competition. And it seems like these riders, I mean, I know we, we hung out a lot, you know, on a film shoot, it's, it can be long days, early mornings, late nights, you telling sure. me you're going to film a sunrise shoot. And then, you know, three hours later, we haven't started yet. So there's a lot of time to, to <laughs> fill and, and banter. So Maybe take Definitely. the listener on a bit of a journey with Aaron Gwynn and, and any other guys that stand out. And especially since you started with Aaron um, before he ever did his first World Cup, True. you know? Yeah. And, and you were the first person. I remember you told me, you literally said, he's going to get a top 10 at his... You, you said to me, he's going to podium in his first year, which he did if you took a whole year from when he did his first World Cup... And and you said to me he's gonna get like a he's gonna get a top ten in his first World Cup and sure as hell he got a top ten in his first World Cup and and you it's <laughs> funny I said that I you did say that, that. that's um, cool though and uh, so you've been with him from literally him pushing yeah. up on the Yeti um, 
to to now you know um yeah i mean it's that that's that was another thing of why that aaron that project with aaron last year was so intriguing for me because it was almost like you know it's it's there's not a lot of times when you get approached to do a project and you've been with the athlete their entire first year like literally traveling with them to all the races um I remember him like sleeping on my couch and stuff like before that season. And um, it was like the Athertons were in Southern California to, to train or whatever. And they came up to my place and we had some raging party and Aaron's like trying to sleep on the couch and everybody's all drunk and shit. And, you know, he's just like, he's, uh, yeah. That this was is like the stories we need. Before. This is what the listener wants. Who got <laughs> drunk? Who was the drunkest? Uh, Rach got, I remember she was sick or she puked um, and then didn't, and then didn't actually drink until Val de Sol world champs in 2008 when her and G won. Uh, yeah, they both won. And I remember after the race or sorry, after the race, I was like, congratulations, Rach, that was so sick. And she, and she was like drinking some champagne and gave it to me and we were drinking it together. And she was like, yeah, this is the first sip of alcohol I've had since your party in Ventura <laughs> when we were in Southern. So yeah. Um, but, but I remember at that party specifically, um, I mean, there was quite a few, like, it might've been that was that, were you at the one needles when Rennie was there and Kyle straight and zinc and all those dudes, like uh, we had a few, ignorance was on that this. not at, uh, that was at April, April lawyer's house. Well, there, well, that I, I'm talking about, uh, like, parties me and Nate would have like it'd be like 2006 2007 2008 era when me and Nate Riffle shout out Nate dog who's the uh no I think that's when Brendan got date raped I mean date raped drugs sorry that came out wrong no that well that was that was a few what is this years story? later how do, no, how do I not Santa know that no, we're not you're not giving the story out on the podcast I'll save that for Brendan to <laughs> tell that one but anyway we're digressing yeah. But but Talk what what I'm what I'm saying is like I remember Gwynny coming up to me at that party and like that was at a time when I was super into partying and so I would would have been pretty drunk and G was into partying and blah 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 and like so so everybody was was drunk and 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 Gwynny's just trying to like sleep on the couch because he was probably staying at my place that week or something and I remember him asking me for the Wi-Fi password at like. 11 at night when it was like peak of the party. And I remember just thinking to myself being like, man, this is, this is kind of wild that, that he's like on the couch, not partying, asking for the Wi-Fi password. And there's this crazy party going around him that's so fucking loose and he's just doing his own thing and is perfectly content doing he that. Would have I remember been... thinking that was so cool to be honest, you know, but, but that was also the tipping point to um, steal a, a term of yours. Um, <laughs> where he probably was like, well, you know, I can catch up on the skill, but I can work harder than any of these guys. And and he basically from probably from that day onwards, he did change the way you have to shape and prepare. You, you know, he became the guy that like had the right the approach, like he has the full package yeah. and he was willing to work harder and, and maybe sacrifice more and be more disciplined. And, um, you know, especially if he sees G and Rach winning world champs and being like, hang on, I can work harder and maybe drink less than these guys. And yeah, I but can, that's, I can a, beat that's them. an off pre-season, off-season party. Like yeah, and that, I mean, like, no, I know, and, but and you know like what I mean? Just, like, just yeah, for sure. No, I definitely know what you mean. It could have been something that 
that could have been could something have that Gwyn could have been looking at. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Gwyn's definitely like any high performing person where he's always kind of has his ear to the ear to the streets or whatever, you know, where he, where he's always kind of like really uh, picking up on things and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, around that time, it's, it's the Athertons were definitely in Southern California to train and they were definitely training hard. But I think, I think Aaron just came into it. The other thing that people kind of like forget to mention is that, well, one, he, like even earlier when we were talking about Gwynny and you guys were mentioning the fact that he, that he had this moto career and he learned a lot of like kind of discipline and training from that. Before that, he had the same in BMX racing. You know, he started racing national BMX races when he was like four, you know, and by the time he was like seven or eight, he was one of those kids where only the really kind of only like the, I guess, late 90s American BMX listeners will relate to it. But there was a certain a, a number of kids where so so in the late 90s in BMX racing, there was there was the ABA and the NBL and there was two sanctioning bodies. Right. And they're both really both super legit. And if you were a pro, you kind of raced both series. But a lot of the amateurs would only focus on ABA or only focus on NBL. ABA was maybe more of a West Coast thing and NBL more of an East Coast thing. Well, Gwynny, I remember last year when I was hanging out with him and we were working on Timeless, I was picking his brain about all that stuff. And he was he was one of the few kids that he had an ABA sponsor and an MBL sponsor. So he had like rode for one team when he went to the ABA races, had one kit, one bike. And then for all the MBL races, he had a completely different bike, different kit. You know, it'd be like if you did if for crankwork series you rode for specialized and then the world cup series you rode for track you know what i mean that's exactly dude and 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 he's (laughs) like six or seven when this is going on so he's like the secrets out man this whole like new to mountain bike shit this guy yeah i mean dude he had so much fucking race experience when he got into mountain biking that it's like it kind of if you look at it like that makes a lot of sense how he got so good because he had this, he had the bike skills from BMX from literally when he was a kid and then went into moto and has the moto skills. Plus, I think what he really learned from moto the most is discipline, Yeah. right? Yeah, he like, that. Like, dude, yeah. that trainer that he had when he was right before he got into mountain biking, he, I think he learned a ton from him. And it's he just learned discipline through moto, man. And it's like, so by the time he's 20 years old, and he goes to Mount St. Anne in 2008 and whatever, he has like 15 years racing experience in two different sports that are similar but different, and then goes into mountain biking, which is almost like a combination of the two sports that he that he started in. So it's like... Similar to Minara. He, I mean, he had yeah. crazy motocross Yeah, didn't Greg do like... Yeah, moto, right? and riding under yeah. pressure as a young kid, for sure. You, mm. you do get more comfortable than... And some others totally man you, but you've worked with all the the legends of past and present um sam hill as well from his his early 2000s um with yeah. mad cats and tell us about the day because uh, you've spoken about it before but I, I, or I don't, maybe you haven't but the first clip that broke the internet it was maybe one of the first viral clips that went around the internet. And you've got to know what I'm talking about if I'm talking about a Sam Hill viral clip. Yeah, the, the Sun Peaks gap. Tell us about that. It's the gnarliest thing I've ever filmed, hands down. <laughs> it's the what? 
the gnarliest thing I've ever I was, filmed, hands down. I was going to ask, is is that the gnarliest thing you've witnessed on a shoot? And you've done, for sure. What? Okay, but in, in mountain biking or as a whole? I think. Uh, so maybe we put I mean, it as I'm mountain biking. I still want to like, ask crazy. you about some of your crazy motocross. I mean, shoot. it's like I filmed like fall of 2019, like Robbie Madison jumping into the LA River. That was pretty gnarly too. But I so I think definitely the Sam clip in this in the mountain biking space i would say that's the gnarliest thing i've ever filmed and that's also and taking it, into consideration like shooting like all the rampage a bunch in the lot yeah rampage too you know shooting the the free ride side of things in the last few years but the 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 yeah i remember sam Why was it, was it also ahead of its time almost to see something that, that gap like a gap that he decided he's yeah for sure gap. because like i remember him always telling me Sam, I remember prior to that day, Sam knew about that gap and he had been to Sun Peaks before. And, and at that point to, this was in 2007, Sam and I had worked pretty closely together for a couple of years now. And Sam was, I was always got along with Sam. Awesome. I thought he was sick and we had a, you know, cool little friendship going on or whatever, but he was always like, yeah, Sun Peaks, we got to film Sun Peaks. So come 2007, whatever, we go to Sun Peaks and I remember ta- uh, that gap is right when you get off the lift too. Um, I remember. And I, so it was the first thing we filmed. It's not like we you know, warmed up on some corners or something like that first. I don't even think he did like a run on his own. It was literally like out of bed. Maybe we had some breakfast and then on the lift and we're into filming. And um, he, yeah, we, I knew that he had some crazy gap lined up. We'd get there and he was, I remember him explaining it to me when we were there and him really having to point out, like, I'm going to go from there to there and me like, not really. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, like, this is gnarly, but all I need to know is where he's taking off and where he's going to land. And if he tells me that, then all I'll focus on is that and I'll try and get the shot, you know? And he did it. He did one run where he rolled it. And that was the first shot of the day. And then the second run is the clip that's in the movie that's that everybody has seen. And then he did it a second time and I shot it from the back and he did it a second time. And then the second time he like did it perfect backside. And I remember the first one, that's the more kind of like gnarly sketchy looking one, which I think looks almost cooler because it shows like how buck and wild it is. I had this conversation with, uh, Brandon all the time we're almost like if if a trick or a turn or something is like too perfectly done it almost looks better on camera if it's like a little looser if there's a little like mistake on the athlete or something like that and uh yeah Sam did that huck and I remember the first time just being like oh that was so fucking gnarly and then he did it again and then then we just kept shooting down the trail and got a ton of rad stuff and then he he like later that morning he crashed and uh didn't hurt himself bad but hurt himself enough where we didn't shoot for the rest of the day and i don't think we shot any more at sun peaks so that entire shoot if you want to call it was like two or three hours you know but that that's that's how it that's why that era was so cool and because you could do that you know and it's like now it was we fuck i would want to put a drone in the air and I don't know, do a bunch of shit that, that you couldn't, you know, I don't know, is, is 
pretty cool. Like, like that, I probably didn't even travel to Sun Peaks with a tripod at the time. Everything was handheld with a video camera, you know, and that now I look back, I'm like, I didn't bring a tripod. That's insane. But that's just, you know, I don't <laughs> know. That's just gonna how have, it was. You're going to have to get that clip for your promos. Yeah, well, workers, I already said, he's but, already said he edits his own work, so he's going to have to edit the audio. <laughs> oh, into yeah. The did you, did but, you, what about the emotion? Like, at that time or any other time, are you sitting on the side of the like trail worried for your, your you've made friendships with these guys. You yeah, that's a good question. Hurt? And you're like, is he doing it because I got the camera here? Like, fuck, is it peer pressure? No, Sam was, I mean, I definitely didn't. I don't think I, I'll tell you really honestly, the only time that I'm filming that I'm worried for the subject, which is oftentimes good friends of mine is at rampage that's the event where i'm like filming it I, like you know like every year it's like you morning a rampage just like yeah it's probably the only time i get like butterflies shooting you know is at rampage also one thing just so sven will definitely understand this but the the, the drops in the airs are so big at rampage that when i'm shooting handheld like wide fisheye off the lip um they're in the air for so long that when I pan with the camera, I always mess up the end of the shot because usually the subject has landed by then, but at Rampage, they're in the air for so fucking long. You pan, and then at the end of your pan, they're still in the air. So the shot, I feel, always looks a little weird, you know? But yeah, Rampage, but but I mean, Sam, Sun Peaks 2007, I, I don't think I was nervous for him because dude, I knew it's Sam Hill. It's 2007. He was on such another level, especially that year specifically that I kind of was just like Sam's. Yeah. I wasn't nervous. What do you think about the, uh, the way media is, is consumed? Um, so that clip 2007, it went on a video and people waited for it and, yeah, I saw of, it. It was rare in the it, next year. Yeah, um, versus now that would have been on Instagram, like by some yep. bro behind the scenes, and totally. it, like, um, I don't know if it's because I'm still so old school, or, <laughs> or you know, I know there's a balance, and 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 you got you got to do both. But what do you think of the the landscape these days of media? How um, how it's all so immediate and all consuming um, versus being, you know, you don't have to save stuff. You can, but you know, how do you feel about how the current, and this isn't in the industry, surfing, skateboarding. Yeah, yeah, like totally, it, totally. Um, you know, because um, obviously things have also, people's attention spans have decreased, you know, so there's a lot of real short, quick for stuff. For sure. And, but then in the same time, there's, there's long form documentaries and, and yeah. podcasts and stuff like that. So, like specifically in in the filming uh, area, like you know, clips going on Instagram before being, you know, like, what do you think? Yeah, for no, I totally know what you mean. Like, like if that Sam Hill thing had gone down now, we probably would be like watching the clip before. on my phone while I was walking down the trail after we shot type thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Where um, I think it's almost like it's changed. It's like these days you either have to put something out like pretty much live as it happens um, or 
you have to really hold on to it, really craft the piece, really take your time. And then anything in between of those two, no one really gives a shit about. Yeah, I think you know? that's well put, yeah. So, but but I think at the same, you know, like people, um, people ask, you know, I've gotten questions over the last couple of years, like, oh, are you bummed that everybody watches things on an iPhone? Or are you bummed that there's no magazines anymore? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I kind of don't really care because... It doesn't, whether somebody watches my work on an iPhone or a fucking movie screen or whatever, it doesn't change the way that I want to make it. Right. So, and so I don't, I don't really, do you, do you find yourself I don't really care? You don't find, cause in photography, I, uh, um, you know, I have my scenic landscape work where the subject matter is real small and the shots are wide and, and it's about totally. the, the landscape and the, the, uh, the riders of an insert. Um, but then you kind of know that's not going to perform well on Instagram and a lot of your clients you're shooting for, like 80% of their, you know, you're delivering work to clients, but 80% is going to be used by the brand and, and the athletes on Instagram. Yeah. So they just want tight in your face action. Do you find yeah. yourself... I guess you shoot differently for different projects, right? When you know the end. Definitely. That's the other thing to, to take. There's, there's no like magic kind of approach or magic way of doing things because every project I do is so different from each other, you know, whether it's showing up for one day and shooting for Ty or somebody when P-Rod's pushing across a bridge for some crazy movie he's working on, you know, or there's a project where, um, like the timeless series with Aaron last year, you know, where it's my approach to each story and each project is so much different. And it's all based on, based on, I guess the stories you want to tell, but also being like practical in what you have to work with, you know, where it's like, I'm going to approach the way I compose a trick that Brandon's doing that I know he's probably never going to do in his life that he's fucking shitting his pants doing. That's some crazy trick. I'm going to maybe shoot a little wider or whatever and make sure I get the shot, you know, versus another scenario. So I think it's, it's all, you know, it's, um, yeah, I, it's, it's amazing. Like, like, like the stuff I do these days is literally like some projects are me doing everything on my own, kind of like how it was back in the day. And then it's, then it's like, on the other side of things, it's like I said, it's like, you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff that I do where it's literally me just showing up to a shoot where I don't even, you know, know where the location is or care to know until I'm driving to the shoot. You know what I mean? Where it's like, and that's something that, that I've really had to learn over the last, I would say five years. I've, I've really had to learn how to separate you know, which projects am I doing for creative fulfillment and which projects am I doing for a financial gain, right? And there's different, there's, there's, you know, you really have to kind of pick and choose your battles and you can't just do one or the other because they both really uh, kind of like, you know, influence each other and help each other out, you know? And so, um, but yeah, I've, I, I've definitely, you know, there's been maybe some growing pains in learning like 
like the commercial side of things and just taking out the emotion of it all, you know, like there's times when I really care about what I do. And there's other times, frankly, where I don't give a fuck about what I do and I show up and I just do my shit and focus, pull my life away and, you know, give somebody my footage and then send them an invoice. And maybe I don't even watch the final product, you know? And I think having that outlook is like really healthy. And that's definitely, I'm stoked that I've, been able to kind of really begin to learn the differences of what's a financial gain and what's a creative um, gain. So Clay. Obviously the best projects are when you can do both, but those are kind of like, don't come around that often and that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, you've mentioned some of the different uh, roles you play in the shoots, but uh, speaking of some of the, the awesome adverts you've done and you've alluded to some, I mean, you've worked with, I'm just going through some of the brief lists. You've, I mean, Nike or Nike for you guys in America, Lexus, you know, you've got Red Bull. You've worked with the likes of Ken Roxon, Robbie Madison, Tyler Burnham. These are motocross riders, right? But yep. also on that list, I'm probably not allowed to talk about it. Maybe we can talk about it. No, but... you can talk about anything on that list. Okay, good. So, well, I even think if it's not out yet. yet. I mean, the likes of Tiger Woods. So, I mean, yeah, talk to crazy. us before uh, we talk about maybe all these big brands. You've worked with some insane people that you probably never thought you would work with. Have you got any, like, inside info into, obviously, for me, I want to know about Tiger Woods, but other yeah. listeners might aspire and, and really appreciate motocross. You, you've worked with Ken Roxon, and you've dressed him up like a grandpa, and you've kind of, yeah. you know, you didn't get to know them like, you know, Aaron Gwynn, but... It must be pretty totally. surreal working with some of these guys. Yeah, I mean, for sure, it's amazing. Uh, um, the moto, the the moto stuff's been really fun to get involved with. In that, I like the fact that I don't have that personal relationship with the athlete. You know, in that, I feel like, like I really enjoy being tasked, and I think this what I'm about to say comes from my background in shooting things that are out of my control, shooting races, right? And that I love going to a shoot and it's with an athlete that I don't know personally at all, but, and I know that there's very limited time, like we're only here for a day or when I shot, I shot a Tiger Woods commercial for Monster Energy last year that hasn't come out yet. And we had three hours with Tiger, right? And so- Only three um, hours, strictly yeah three hours yeah, that's, that's it and pressure. so and so it's but but i've again i think this comes from shooting races it remind that you know having three hours with tiger woods is the same feeling as like and it's not really even heightened at all it's the exact same feeling as like shooting a fire make sure your fucking batteries are charged and you have enough media for when sam hill's race run comes at 323 or whenever it is mm. you know what i mean and so um but 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 i like that like you know, as, as I definitely, it's such a blessing and it's so fun to work with athletes that you're really good friends with. Like when I shoot with you, Andrew, or Brendog, or even like Brandon lately, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm like, these are like my friends that I'm working with, you know? And, and on one hand, that's really amazing. But on the other hand, there's also like, you know, joking around and you kind of forget that you're there to maybe do work from time to time and whatnot. And when you're shooting some crazy, um, subject that doesn't give a shit about what you're doing and is only there because they're getting paid to be there, you know, is it's, 
it's cool. It, it really kind of heightens my alertness and it, I just think it makes for really epic work when you're able to, um, work with somebody in such a confined space of time. And then keep in mind too, like on the, on the tiger thing, we had three hours with him in the morning. And so the day before myself, um, and Cameron Baird and Rupert Walker, who I worked on that piece with, we're with a producer and we're scouting every location, every hole we're going to shoot. And, and this producer, she was, um, she's making notes on, okay, at, at nine o'clock, Tiger will show up to the gym. He'll get changed at nine Oh four. We'll start shooting. We'll have 20 minutes in the gym. We're going to shoot these five exercises for four minutes each. Then we're going to go to the first hole and we need seven minutes to get to that hole. I mean, everything is literally timed to the minute the day before. So that by the time you actually have cameras in your hand, it's almost like kind of like robotic and automatic and that it's nice and that you don't have to think about what you're going to do because you've kind of already done that the day before. And that's Dude, filmmaking in a nutshell is like pre-production and being organized is, that's what it's all about, you know? It's but like, you never used, so. well, you brought it up. But no, go for it. Well, so you've never learned to be, to be organized. organized. Yeah. Did you, to. did you ever fly to South Africa or around the with, world, or around the world with a bag of a gym, weights. Gym, gym weights instead of yeah, just saying, Hey, gym. Andrew, do you have, 20 pounds of weights you can just lend yep. me instead <laughs> of just paying like luggage. $400 a flight for excess luggage. Yeah. I mean, you weren't that... the most organized guy at all. I'm just going to no. put it out there. You were a bit logistically no, 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 challenged no. back in the day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think is like, I look back on it and I'm just like, I'm amazed at myself at how I made this shit because I'm like, dude, I'm so, so loose as a person and, and not even like, like I was just young, dude. It's yeah, like, you were. know, when you're, when you're like 22 and you're like going around the world with a video camera, it's like a moment, you're just kind of like in this la la land of like, what the fuck is going on? And it's like, I look back on it and like, I guess the saying like ignorance is bliss or whatever is like, dude, that's like, the first 10 years of me doing this shit is just like, go for it and kind of see what happens, you know? Yeah. And so, fake it till you make it almost. But yeah, you, yeah exactly. You, fake till you make it. You brought it. up um, so many times, like, how do you focus pool? And you were like, well, I just started doing it and I got better over yeah. time. I think it's like an incredible way to go through life. Like you can only get better by just doing, doing, doing. And you've obviously followed your passion. And and I, I like to tease you, but you obviously learned like, shit, there's a professional side to this. You wouldn't, have got totally. gigs with Lexus, Nike, mm. Tiger Woods, if you weren't however professional. But at the same mm. time, we've obviously had a great positive spin on this. But me and you have shared, uh, you know, some of your challenges and stuff like that. And I don't think it's fair yeah. to to have the listener just listen to us shit talking, have a great time, and you're with all these amazing brands. But you spoke about keeping inspiration and being creative, but what about like when you struggle to stay fulfilled, mm. uh, when the creativity dries up or stuff in your personal life's going wrong and you can't get inspired on a shoot? Like you've gone through some tough times as well. Like no career, just because it's an awesome, good career doesn't make it like an easy career. Totally. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I think 
Um, I definitely, I guess how, I guess starting maybe around the time that I did the Atherton project. So 2009, I had already been traveling to the world cups for a couple of years with Yeti and had done between the tape in 2006 and first the year after and the tipping point the year after that. So I did three movies in three years. Um, and then, and, uh, was kind of at a point where I guess I reached a lot of goals that I had for myself pretty early on, which was really amazing. But I got to a point where I was doing all this stuff, say I'm shooting with Sam Hill or whatever, and was just kind of like to myself, like, why am I not more fulfilled? You know, why, why am I not, I guess, happier? And I think, um, I had to learn that this job and really anything in life, whether you're me or you, Andrew, being a professional athlete is like, it's so easy to fall into the trap of like, just believing that what you do is awesome. A hundred percent of the time. And it's not like that in anything, really anything in life. And I guess I had to, it was a wake up call for me that like, wait a second, if I, if I make fucking the tipping point or three minute gaps, that doesn't mean that I'm happier as a person, you know? And for a while I thought that, that, that if I did a certain project, I'd maybe be happier, more fulfilled. And it, and it took me years to learn that like those two things don't intersect, you know? And so I think because I was in this position where I was really doing exactly what I wanted to do and maybe, maybe not taking as much time off as I should. That led to um, some depression and some burnout at times. Um, and yeah, I've just had to learn how to, I, th I, I think depression is something that like you don't get that you don't get like cured from it. You just learn how you learn skills to, deal with how you're wired as a person, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just, um, I think a lot of it too is, is I had, I had opportunities that I didn't want to lose, you know, like, it's like, are you gonna take some time off or do the Atherton project with Red Bull and actually make, a make money doing it, you know? And I, I took the Atherton project and maybe, Maybe I should have taken some time off or something like that, but it's, but it's fucking hard, man. When you're, when I've literally been doing what I'm doing now for the past 17 years. And I know that like, you know, you don't get hired if you, if you, what's the saying, you're only as good as your last project. And I kind of think that's pretty much hundred percent accurate. So it was just a battle to learn, I guess, a work-life balance. Um, but I think now I'm doing, fuck, I'm probably doing the best I've ever been in my life, I would say, you know, and, and one thing that's really helped me like really recently in the last couple of years is um, in 2017, I moved to Bend, Oregon, and maybe like a year after I lived here, I was hanging out with Kyle Jamison, a bunch who lives here, who, who I had hung out with a bunch in Santa Cruz, which is where I moved from. Um, and he, he pretty much dragged me up to Mount Bachelor, the bike park, and was just like, we're going to do we're going to do laps today. And I was just, you know, I hadn't even put two and two together that I live 15 minutes from like a sick lift access bike park. And so he took me up there 
We had a sick time. He had two downhill bikes at the time and pretty much just gave me one of his downhill bikes that I rode for like three years. And then, and then, uh, yeah, just got, I got the last couple of years, I've gotten super into riding in the summer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that the, the riding has definitely helped, um, with my depression, with anxiety, just with, with caring less in the best possible way. You know, I don't care less because I'm want to do a shittier job or something like that. I care less because my attitude these days is like, say I do a shoot with Tiger Woods and we completely fucking blow it. And Tiger says, I'm a fucking dick to work with. Like who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Whether yeah, it's not like we're like curing day, huh? cancer or anything. It's like, you know, most of the work that I do is literally filming my friends in the woods. And it's like, so like, I just don't, I put so much pressure on myself back in the day. And maybe that, that was a good thing because it allowed me to do a lot of fucking work in a really short amount of time. But, um, I had to learn how to care less basically. And now I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't think there'd be like, like if you were like, say, you know, I haven't caught up with Sven in probably a couple months or whatever. Say if Sven was like, oh, dude, I just did a shoot with the fucking president of South Africa. Like, I'd just be like, oh, sick. How was it? Like, what'd you guys eat for lunch? You know, I, I don't care. You know, all I care about is like, I'd want to maybe see the photo that he did with the president of South Africa. And, but as far as like, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's almost like too, I've had to learn with the editing side of things like editing fucking sucks. Yeah. Speak a bit Ask about any that. filmmaker, any being in a room for so long, dude. I mean, but what I I've had to like, you know, in the last five, 10 years, just be brutally honest with myself. And the reality is I could be working on the dream project and editing is still going to suck. <laughs> Like there's basically, you can't. <laughs> Why does it suck so much? Just because it takes and, so long. And what is the formula yeah, it's so, to, it's, it's, to it's do so a good It's so tedious, editor. dude. Yeah. And to be a good editor, it's a fucking invisible art form, dude. If you're a good editor, the audience doesn't even know the editing. The audience assumes that that's what they would have made if they would have <laughs> had the footage. Right? And that that's a good editor. And it's like, it's, um, I've just learned, especially I guess maybe in the last even like post death grip say that like no matter you could be doing death grip which is fucking pick the sickest riders in the world that you want to work with and make a movie with one of your best buds like it doesn't and you know you've shot this amazing footage that you know is amazing blah 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 but still you can't be naive to the fact that there's still work okay mm. and it's just work dude it's like moving clips around in a timeline, whatever. And it's funny, that's, I, I've often said in the last couple of years when like I've done stuff in Utah and say it's like Brandon doing a thing in Utah or, or even when we were in Utah for Death Grip and, and I went out for the, for the build when Bren, Ollie and myself and Adam Billingshurst went out to Utah and built a bunch of shit. And then we came back a couple months later and actually shot it. I was like, on day one, I was like, this is so sick because digging in Utah and building a line is like editing, but you have friends there. It's the same thing, dude. It's like you have a blank canvas in Utah and you have all the options in the world of where you could go. 
and it's almost like you have too many options and and your job is to to make something that when you start it seems like an impossible task you know what i mean like um it's funny at rampage every year i guess especially if it's an if it's a new venue you know it's like the athletes it's changed over the years but say they have like now it's like they have four day four dig days a rest day and then four dig days in the event day well so you have eight days digging but it's like you you when it's a new venue you look at that and you're just like how is this ever going to get built in time and then sure enough by come event day it's like everybody's had just the amount right amount of time to to make it you know so i don't know editing is it's funny just with like do like working with brandon and the fact that 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 there's so many builders involved and stuff and i really get along good with all of his diggers because it's it's like i relate to them so much and that like you're just like every day you know waking up and you look at what you have to do whether it's those boys digging Brandon's rampage line or me, you know, on a Monday morning opening up premiere on a fresh project or whatever. And you're just like, it's so it's, it can be very overwhelming at times, the options you have, but you just got to tell yourself one, one foot in front of the other and just trust the process, you know, so, and trusting and, the process is something that's, t- you know, I'm, and, it'll, and, it'll, and it sounds taking like you- me, I'm hearing that you've made peace with your work. Like it seems like if you feel you've done a good job professional, you're at peace yeah. with it. You put it on the internet and it's almost like don't read the comments, you know? And and these days, because there's so much hate, someone could be like, totally. fuck, did you see Clay's latest edit? It was shit. So yeah, that guy's for sure. just a keyboard warrior and you could let it, maybe when you're younger, you let it get to you. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, it was almost like, you know, like synopsis, hypnosis between the tape days. Like I would get, fucking pissed if somebody's like your movies are too long or what zinc used to always tell me that back in the day he's like your movies are way too long and i was like oh zinc you don't know what you're talking about you're just a free rider i don't know what i thought but like these days it's like it's almost like i i enjoy the challenge if maybe somebody were to say you know have a critique of my work like i enjoy i've learned to enjoy the problem solving that it comes with trying to make your work kind of different each project than the last and not to say that everything's I've done is different from the last by any means, but I guess that's always the goal. And that's kind of what, what is the motivation that I need just to like take a deep breath and put one foot in front of the other and just trust the process, you know, and really understand that the process, like I said a minute ago, isn't always fucking rainbows and flowers and happy days with the bros. You know, it's like, you can have that, but don't be naive to the fact that you still have to edit and you still have to invoicing and accounting and just everything that, you know what I mean? It's like, it's really easy. I think in our world to kind of like, to believe the hype that's around you and what people are telling you that aren't in your shoes about how, you know, Oh, it's so cool. You get to travel. It's so blah, 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 this or that. And, and it is cool. I agree with them, but you, you understand that take everything with a grain of salt and realize like, I mean, dude, all we're, we're pretty much, you know, nothing I don't think I've ever done is going to like really, I, I guess at this point, change anything you know it's like that and that and that's kind of what keeps me 
still doing this is I want to do the project that in a hundred years is still going to be remembered when I'm long and done, you know, and maybe I've done some of that stuff in the mountain bike world, but I want to do it in like culture, you know? All right. So, so you say that who, what would be the subject or the person or the sport of the genre? What, what would your dream person or, you know, like you said, that would survive a hundred years. What would, like, who would you most like to work with next? Hmm. And, and maybe, like, you know, like, or, or, or topic or subject or, or um, it's, yeah, sport. it's more me. I think it's not really about like a certain subject I want to work with next, but it's more finding a story that I believe has impact for positive change outside of the sport itself, you know, um, where it's like, I've just kind of learned recently too. It's like, no matter how, and I would put won't back down. And what I'm about to say too, is like, won't back down. So I'm fucking really proud of that project, blah, blah, blah. But still it's at the end of the day, it's a movie about an athlete trying to be really good at his sport and every sport you could tell that story in any sport, you know, it's like, I'm looking for the story that's any athlete trying to be the best in his sport. And when he's in the best in his sport, um, something happens that changes him fundamentally, therefore hopefully changes the impact it'll have on the audience. You know, like I want to make a movie where G Afton wins the world cup series and then fucking invents a cure for cancer. <laughs> exactly. Right. And yeah. like anything less than that, it's kind of like who gives a fuck. So you, so you, I mean? you, you basically come, that, that's my attitude right now. But I, guess. I mean, you've basically you've you've come full circle and and you've self actualized. You no longer you 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 really wanted to do greater good and not just personal good. Um, so that's really you've reached enlightenment, really, as a person. I get, yeah, I mean, maybe, but there's well, you, still you're I mean, heading still, that way. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that's where I want to be but um yeah it's it's I think a really something like I'm trying to think of an example of a film that um that's the thing is there's so much storytelling going on right now where it's not like 10 years ago where if I pitch a project where hey me and Andrew Neithling are going to go to some location in the world we're going to go to Siberia and film like who gives a fuck everybody's been everywhere, you know, what, it, how is, what, what, what's going to be the piece of the story that's going to separate it from the bunch. And I think, especially in mountain biking and adventure sports, you know, like skiing, I think from what I've seen is, is pretty guilty of this too, that gone are the days where you can just go somewhere and that's unique. Like everybody's been everywhere in my opinion. And so it's about, it's almost like, it's like, I want to make a movie about an athlete that no one cares about, no one knows about. Like, like, like about I story. like the challenge say, of like, yeah, the people. It's about it, it's it's, people. it's about like 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 uh, maybe in the racing space, it's like I would probably have maybe even more fun doing a project about a guy that's or a girl for that matter who's just trying to qualify for a World Cup and no one knows who's you know camping in the parking lot and is sprinter and eating top ramen or whatever. Like 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 that is almost a more interesting story to me than an athlete who's really good continuing to trying to be really good. You like know what morally, I mean? And, and, yeah, and, and, and I think you're trying to find that, a more relatable story. 
Yeah, just just anything that's that's like you know, audience not is... to say I, I don't love shooting top level athletes. Of course I do, but I I maybe get more of a kick out of the challenge of that other example of shooting, you know, someone trying to qualify or something like that. You know, I'm kind of just speaking off the top of my head in terms of examples, but I think you guys get that it's about like amazing stories are more than just, they're more than just the sport at hand, you know? And sometimes, sometimes the losing can be more interesting than the winning. Like obviously for sure a documentary like that. One, one example I'll give on that is, uh, the project I did with the Athertons after the Athertons project called four by three. And it was the year after the Athertons project. And, and, and I remember telling that was at a point where like I did the Athertons project for three years. And then a lot of the other teams were starting to do videos kind of like the Athertons project. Um, and so I was like, okay, I want to do the opposite of the Atherton project, which at the time in 2012 was bring a red camera to the World Cups and bring a jib to the World Cups and all this shit. Anyways, one of the one of my most favorite projects I've probably ever done is the first episode of that, which was following Rach at Fort William World Cup in 2012. And at that point in her career, she hadn't won Fort William. And so the whole story was about her trying to win that event and she gets second place. And it was almost more relatable or inspiring to see how she handled a second place than how she celebrated a win yeah for sure you know what you're going to enjoy clay it's not of your work but i think you must What's have up? contributed a lot is the stevie smith documentary oh yeah that Antil actually did. haven't i haven't seen the final cut yet and i'm really stoked Dude. to see it but i saw like a one of the early a couple of the really early cuts darcy sent to me and yeah. i would give him just some light notes on what i awesome thought was and the mountain bike community that one's gonna yeah sick they did that project like that's a on the sport and the, the like, whole totally, story man. so inspirational doesn't matter if you like bikes or not so that's that's yeah pretty, i'm stoked to cool. see the final cut because like i said i saw some of the earlier cuts um, but I think, you know, really kind of mad respect for Darcy and the Ant Hill team for taking, there's such a, um, I guess a pressure and a kind of responsibility that comes with doing a project like that. And yeah. it's really, it's fucking gnarly, dude. Like that's kind of how, um, you know, I think really that's, I mean, that, that project is how a lot of people are going to remember Stevie, you know, and with that comes just like such an enormous responsibility that honestly, I can't even speak for because I've never done a project where it's about, it's kind of honoring somebody that's passed away, you know? So I, I have nothing but respect and admiration for Darcy and always have really like those guys are cable cam pioneers and such a, I think the collective and anthill are really like, um, the first, you know, one of the, definitely one of the first people that comes to mind to kind of shoot mountain biking in a really artistic way, you know, and do things more differently cinematic. and yeah, more cinematic and really doing builds specific to a shoot and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And, and you would have given a lot of shots. I yeah. A bunch of shit. Given the shots of the and that dude, movie. it was hard, man, because that's the thing when it's like, you know, if I, I want to give, Darcy and the boys, everything I possibly can, but me giving Ant Hill and Darcy everything I possibly can is like a full-time job for a year, right? Because my archive is so much, so many drives and tapes and everything that like, 
I, I wish I had had more time to give them more footage, but it was just like, I, 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 I think I gave them, I definitely gave them a ton of stuff, but it's, 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 I'm sure there's some clip of Stevie from 2007 that I wasn't able to pull that probably could have added something to the project, but there's only so many hours in the day and whatever, yeah. you know, the good thing about filmmaking is the audience will never know that. I was you know going mean? to say, don't all worry. That. We, yeah. It doesn't look like and another missing, and the same Darcy said the same. That's thing. cool. And I was like, no one will know. And like, it's just incredible yeah. what they've done. That's a big thing in documentary filmmaking, um, and I guess a big piece of advice I would have to anybody is that like, the audience doesn't know what you missed, right? The audience doesn't know where you, you fucked cut. up or where you could have gotten this shot or you could have done this. They that that that's. They don't know that. So just take a deep breath when you're shooting if you fuck something yeah. up that, you know, that's the beauty I, of editing, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's our, we have different crafts, photography and, and, and um, film, filmmaking, but like so much of what you've said has paralleled my, my work from whether it be from you got injured, so you started shooting more than writing, mm. and then you were running around in your pad shooting the analysis ex exactly <laughs> to the T, totally exactly how did. I started in my thing. But then also the pressure you've put on yourself, especially on a finals day or a world champs or a rampage to not fuck up or with a Seminac to not fuck up yeah. that shot. But it's it's pretty much, you know, the, the same, you know, you can't recreate these moments. And like you said, the advice to, to, to kids is like, shoot racing things that are outside of your control because that can just yeah. make things easier for when you you know and I, and I always have said that to anyone like that's the best way you can become a good photographer where you don't can't control mm -hmm. the light the elements the weather the timing the action the direction totally um, but man. you do have like you said in practice repetitive you have a lot of writers coming through totally but um yeah and and that's with the stevie smith project when he passed that was my way of dealing with with grief was mm, going into the archives I remember that. and and sort of mining and trying to like I almost became obsessive like trying to find mm. every shot I had of Stevie and I was going to shots I remember you were you did all that like or never right after tagged. you passed yeah, yeah. I literally just and you were so like, like a, proactive a a couple of days. I remember being so impressed and and it, it was just I don't know that was my my coping mechanism yeah you're like therapy for yeah. it um totally um yeah, I remember Rob Parkin did a really amazing piece right after yeah. um, Stevie passed that went around. And, and I know Rob contributed a ton to, to Darcy's project and and whatnot. But yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to see the final cut of that thing. It's always really fun for me to see like now that I'm, you know, if, again, if you would have told me 10 years ago, even 15 years ago that I would be getting sent the collective's rough cut to give them notes on their own film is like ridiculous to me. So the fact that I'm incredibly honored that Darcy asked me to be involved even in the slightest, you know, but um, yeah, again, mad respect and fair play to those boys for, for making that project. That, that That's the other thing too, is like people, it's so easy from the outside or some keyboard warrior to be like, oh, I would have done it this way or I would have done it that way or you should have done it that way. Well, my answer is always like, okay, well, then go do it, you know? It's like ideas are cool and all and they can maybe help get you going, but the real value is in the people that can make this shit. You know what I mean? It's like, 
it's cool if you want to talk about it and you have a vision, but what's a, what's, what's the point of a vision if, if, if you don't have, if you can't execute that vision, you know? So, yeah. Clay, that's uh, I think those are pretty powerful words to, to wrap it up and uh, it's been so good to catch up and I'm glad we snuck yeah, Spin in here to have a, Dude, have a good so go. sick. And, <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you for producing the content and doing all the work to showcase yeah. our sport and other sports. And I think may we leave the listener with where they can follow along on your journey. And you, you alluded a little bit to what's driving you to stay inspired, but what's on the horizon for you uh, as you leave us here on this podcast? Yeah, I'm, um, I, I've, I'm in the processing process, excuse me, of finishing um, three really big projects. The first of which is fully done and delivered. And it's a 24 minute, moto film with red bull that's going to come out very soon sometime before supercross so in next month sometime i don't know exactly when but it's a uh 24 minute moto film that i made with john reynolds and cameron baird and rupert walker came to a bunch of shoots and we pretty much just wanted to make a core stylized moto film kind of in the same way that i guess like death grip was made in that there's really, there's, I guess, a little bit of a story there, but really the goal is just to make a stylized uh, piece because the moto world doesn't have a lot of that, you know? So I'm, I'm super stoked on that project. Really proud of the cinematography, really proud of the editing. The story is a little flat, but whatever. We didn't set out to make a <laughs> crazy story on that one, so I'll live with it. And then um, I'm currently editing um, another film project that I've been chipping away at with Carson Storch for the last couple of years. So my history with Carson's really interesting in that he's an athlete that prior to 2017, I had never really even met before. Um, but basically right after death grip, I got a job with free ride entertainment and Jeremy Grant, the director on North of nightfall, which is a film that Red Bull did that free ride entertainment was the production partner on, um, and it's like Darren Bearcloth, Carson, Tom Van Steenbergen, and who was the last rider? Cam Zink, um, in the Arctic. And so we were on this island in the Arctic for like a month, right? Um, and <clears throat> that was one of those projects where I just got hired to shoot, you know, which is which I love those projects. It's like I just I'll see the movie when it comes out, like everybody else. <laughs> it's amazing. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have to do the work, you know. Like I love, you know. I I guess I do the heavy lifting when we're out there, but I don't have to do the like heavy lifting in the mind per se, you know, in the editing. But anyways, on that trip, we're we're there was fourteen people with athletes included, and we're on this this desert island in the middle of the Arctic, and so we had there's just so much downtime, and so. I'd never worked with Carson. Carson and I obviously got to know each other on that shoot. And randomly, um, I was planning to move to Bend, Carson's hometown, Carson's hometown where I live now, just after that, just after we got back from that shoot. So we did that shoot. Death Grip premiered in like May, I think, of 2017. Um, April or it premiered in April, came out May 30th on iTunes of 2017. And then June and July, I worked on North of Nightfall met Carson and then in August moved to Bend. And so then I, you know, I moved to Bend and naturally was hanging out with Carson. And then in, in the following spring of 2018, we started chipping away at our own, um, our own film project basically. So I'm currently editing that project, which 
which you can on one hand look at it and build it up as this three-year super project, blah, blah, blah. But it's really not that because the entire project is shot in Oregon, in and around Bend, which is really interesting. And that, um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a re- it's been a really cool project and that, and that it's not a project where I have pressure to release it or really pressure from anybody. It's Carson and I doing it because we want to do it. And, and so I'm just really stoked on that project and editing that now that'll be probably like 20, 25 minutes. Um, and we'll come out sometime before the end of the year, but I don't even know when. Time is ticking. I know um, I was working on it pretty some late nights lately, but, um, but it's it's a fun one in that in that the editing is a lot easier because there's no storytelling involved really. There's no dialogue to edit. Um, most of the times we shot was single camera, so it's just me and Carson out there. Like probably half of the days we shot was just me and Carson out there, and then you know probably the most amount of people we had was like was like two other shooters for one for one of the shoots. So it's it's cool to kind of, it's almost like that projects, the name of the film's quarter point. It's like, that's the opposite of North of Nightfall and that North of Nightfall is like travel to the end of the world, end of the world and blah, blah, blah. And this is like sleep in your own bed and film dirt jumps up the street. Like you used to, it's almost back, but with almost really full, crazy cameras that I own now. Yeah. Almost <laughs> full circle and back to your roots. Dude, it is bro. We might have to catch up again. Thanks so much for making the time and they can find yeah, you on Instagram you. at Clay Porter, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Clay Porter. And I think in, I haven't updated my website since 2014, so don't go there for anything. Mine's current, not but, updated um, since 2007. Yes. That's, that's, that's sick, well, dude. <laughs> well, Clay's, Clay's work is... But, but yeah, Insta is the one platform that I do try and kind of add to. I've been a little slow on it lately because I've been... I've these two really kind of long form projects I've been doing, but, um, but yeah, all this stuff will be coming out soon. I'm really stoked to drop it. Cause I think it's some of my best work for sure. Well, awesome. Well, thanks to Sven Martin. It's so awesome to yeah. have a co-host, um, and someone that knows Clay well and that's housed Clay and housed me. So it's like a little Dude. family reunion yet. So thanks. It Sven. is bro. Thanks, Clay. <laughs> Clay, do you know, you. do you now, either turn on the extraction fan or open the door or window when you cook bacon in someone's house. Um, yeah, I would do that. But, but where, where I fucked up too, is I didn't put bin bags in the trash can and it's just threw my eggshells. And so that's more what I learned from living at your house. Like, is like, yeah, I mean, yeah. For, for the, for the viewers, one last quick thing just to clarify is Sven was the uh are we still we still there yeah yeah I was just gonna say Sven is uh when I first moved out of my parents place I somehow convinced Sven and his wife Anka to let me live with them for like three months and they did and I was 18 and I've learned a lot since then (laughs) and one last thing before you guys go if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend make sure you subscribe Leave us hopefully a five-star rating and review. I read all those reviews. It's awesome getting them. If you got any feedback, you want to send me a message, I get all those messages. I try to respond to them all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun journey so far. So until the next one, stay well.